2: Today's episode is presented by Lloyds Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyds Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK.
3: Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe, and you're listening to the number one EU politics podcast. This week, Angela Merkel has lived to fight another day. But maybe Theresa May will be gone by the time you're hearing this. Whatever the case, the battles of their respective governments are far from over. Merkel's bilateral migration deals will take months to work out. At Politico, we spoke to all 16 governments she's negotiating with, and you can count the done deals on one hand. And the Austrian presidency of the EU is even considering extending Brexit deadlines. That's how late the UK is in coming up with their proposals. But in this episode, we turn our attention to two other fronts. First, the NATO summit next week, where Hurricane Trump threatens to make landfall in Brussels. I spoke to Jens Stoltenberg, the head of NATO, to preview the meeting. And he's got a surprise for Trump. There are more NATO countries that will hit their 2% defence spending target this year. After Stoltenberg, you'll hear from Polish Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki. He presided over the sacking of many of the country's judges this week. But he then went to the European Parliament in Strasbourg to launch an EU charm offensive. For context, I spoke to him before last week's EU Leaders Summit. And last but not least, the podcast panel discussion looks at a crazy 48 hours for the members of the European Parliament in Strasbourg. One bit of good news that we learned of only after the discussion is that Parliament has agreed to ban unpaid internships in the institution. Now it's time to hear from Jens Stoltenberg. Jens Stoltenberg, thank you for joining us on the EU Confidential podcast. Thank you for having me. So we're chatting here in your office in the new NATO headquarters and it's a big week for you because there'll be a NATO summit next week. First of all, this building, like everyone's now in, it's very impressive. It's a big upgrade from the last one. What's your favorite part? How are you feeling here?
4: For me, the favorite part is the agora because that's a big open space where people can meet and it uh, hopefully reflects that NATO is an open alliance where actually people from many different nations meet and try to really do something together. And, uh, of course, compared with the old building, which was some kind of temporary solution, which we moved into when we had to move from Paris, when France left military cooperation in NATO in 1966, this is a great improvement. And uh, because the plan was only to stay there for some few years, now we have a... New modern building reflecting that NATO is a modern alliance
3: for the 21st century. I saw the stage outside. The journalists will love you. We don't have to kill each other now to get the camera shots. We can actually be respectful when people come on in. Now... I guess the thing everyone's been talking about in the last couple of days are these letters that Donald Trump has sent out to all of the the NATO allies. Tell us a little bit about how you're reacting to those sort of uh, inputs from different allies and what are you going to do to kind of keep a positive atmosphere and have everyone manage their tensions in the room rather than be bad allies. So my message to all allies is that uh, actually
4: we have a very, very good story to tell. After decades of cutting defense spending, We decided back in 2014 that, well, the world has become more dangerous. We need to invest more in our security. And uh, we decided to stop the cuts and start to increase. And that's exactly what we have done. All allies have stopped the cuts in defense spending. All allies have started to increase in real terms. And more allies spend 2% of GDP on defense now than in 2014. In 2014, it was three allies. Now, this year, I expect eight, eight allies to meet that pledge Ah, who are number
3: seven and eight
4: let us in on the secret no no, but i mean these are uh, these are estimates of course we will have only final figures at the end of the year but eight allies will be at two percent or very close but uh, perhaps even more important is that all allies have started to move and we didn't promise that all allies should spend two percent within a year or next year we promised that all allies should move towards spending two percent within a decade and that's exactly what we are doing so we still have a long way to go. The picture is still mixed, but the picture is much better than it was just a few years ago. So it shows that NATO is delivering. Uh, NATO allies uh, make good on the pledge they uh, made together in 2018. Not because we love defence spending. I have been a politician for many years, and I know that most politicians, they like to spend money on health, on education, on infrastructure. And when I was Minister of Finance in
3: Norway in the 1990s, I was responsible for cutting defence budgets in Norway. Um but it can be smart defense spending. I mean, for example, if you upgrade your highway infrastructure or your digital infrastructure to, to cope for troop movements, to cope for cybersecurity demands, you can, you can get two for the price of one, can't you?
4: Well, we need to spend more and we need to spend better. My point was that when we cut defense spending when tensions are going down, then we have to be able to increase defense spending when tensions are going up as they are now. We have to invest in many different kinds of capabilities, including in cyber. We have strengthened our cyber defenses. We are establishing now cyber as a military domain alongside air, sea, and land. We will have cyber. We will make a decision at the summit next week to to establish an operational cyber center to strengthen our cyber defenses. So we will do a lot to do more
3: to respond to more challenging security environments. Now, if we think of the members of NATO who are also members of the EU, a lot of them are really proud at the moment of how well the PESCO arrangement has developed. So for anyone listening who doesn't know that, that's the enhanced cooperation amongst EU member states on defense, including in research, procurement, and so on. Are you happy with how they're contributing? Is that going to be a a useful factor in meeting those targets for NATO?
4: Yes, uh, I and NATO has welcomed the EU efforts on defense, the PESCO, also the framework to develop new capabilities, and the European Defence Fund to finance new capabilities and uh, research. We can welcome this because it has been so clearly stated by many European leaders. This is not about creating an alternative to NATO, not competing with NATO, not replacing NATO, but actually strengthening the European pillar within NATO, and that has been clearly stated by many European leaders. Because any competition between NATO and the European Union will be absolutely meaningless, because. That will be more than 90% of the people living in the EU, they live in a NATO country. So competition between NATO and the EU will be like competing with ourselves. Then, of course, EU cannot replace NATO because after Brexit, 80% of NATO's defense expenditure will come from non-EU allies. So most of our military capabilities, most of our military strength, will come from non-EU NATO allies. This is partly about uh, spending, but also about geography. In the north, you have Norway facing the Atlantic Sea, North Atlantic. In the south, you have Turkey, extremely important for addressing terrorist threats in Iraq, Syria. And then in the west, you will have Canada, the United States, and the United Kingdom. So this is both about capabilities, cash, military spending, 80% non-EU but also geography and uh, therefore
3: a meaningful and strong defense of Europe is only possible with NATO. That might bring us to Russia, which could potentially be a bit of a curveball in some respects for the summit next week. Now we're speaking at Thursday lunchtime, so things might move on on this next matter by the time people are hearing this conversation but it was revealed last night that there are two more Britons who are ill from a nerve agent near the previous attack that has been attributed to Russia in March. Have you got any views on that case? What's the role that Russia is going to play in the, the discussions at this summit? Because remembering Donald Trump, the US president, will go on to a meeting with Putin in Helsinki a few days after your summit. I welcome the upcoming
4: meeting between President uh, Trump and President uh, Putin. That is consistent with the NATO policies. We have stated uh, that we are uh, in favor of what we call a dual-track approach to Russia. We need strong defense combined with a dialogue. For us, there is no contradiction between defense or dialogue. It's defense and dialogue. Because as long as we are united, as long as we are firm in our approach to Russia, we can also engage in political dialogue with them. We don't want a new Cold War. We don't want a new arms race. Russia is our neighbor. Russia is there to stay. So we need dialogue to try to improve the relationship, to strive for a better relationship. But even without a better relationship with Russia, we need to manage a difficult relationship. We see more military presence, more exercises, higher tensions, and we have to make sure that there are no miscalculations, misunderstandings, incidents or accidents that can trigger a really dangerous situation. So, military lines of communications, mechanisms for risk reduction, reciprocal briefings on exercises, military posture, all of that helps to uh, prevent a dangerous situations. So, we need dialogue partly to improve our relationship with Russia, but also to manage the current difficult relationship with Russia.
3: Maybe that brings us to a final question around the insider baseball, the Americans would call it, of how NATO works, because clearly you're in charge of the civilian wing of the alliance, and then there is the military operational wing of the alliance. How do those two parts of the alliance work together around something like a summit? Clearly, the political leadership sets the directions of what the alliance should do, but you need the expert advice, you need the input of the military officers. So how do you coordinate with them? What's their input around the summit table and, and all of the, the discussions that happen around it?
4: The military, the military commanders, they give us military advice. Uh, but at the end of the day, we are in alliance of 29 democracies, we have democratic political control over our armed forces. So that's actually not so very different from what democratic uh, nations uh, do also in other areas where we have Advice from the experts, be it in healthcare or education, you listen to the people working in the sector. But at the end of the day, it has to be the politicians that make the decisions, and that's also, of course, the case in NATO or and in NATO allied countries. But their advice is extremely important for our decisions, and they are also implementing our decisions. So when we, based on military advice, decided to have four battle groups in the Baltic countries we listen to military advice. And of course, when we decide to do that, it's our military commanders that are implementing that decision. When we are fighting terrorism in Iraq or Daesh or uh, Afghanistan, then this is about implementing political decisions, but commanders are responsible for
3: uh, doing that. And thinking about What you'd like to see in the newspapers and on the TV the day after the summit? What's the headline you'd like to see or the the top conclusion you you want the leaders to reach out of the meeting?
4: That NATO has demonstrated uh, unity and uh, continue to deliver uh, security for
3: almost one billion people living in NATO allied countries. Jens Stoltenberg, thank you for joining us on this special podcast, NATO Confidential. Thank you so much for having me. Next up is Polish Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki. Mr. Prime Minister, the critics say that Poland is isolated inside the EU. There are
1: different approaches with regard to this issue of refugees and we can ask ourselves how many people from Africa we can accept. One million? okay, ten million? 100 million there is 1 billion 100 million people in africa and definitely we have to have a completely different solution for issues developed there we we need more of a marshall plan for africa we need to strengthen external borders and also to engage meaningful funds to develop programs in situ in, in Northern Africa to avoid human trafficking and so on. And also the idea which, which came up a couple of, I think years ago, two or three years ago, to prepare hotspots and to deal with asylum seekers and with uh, migrant workers in those places, rather than having them in Europe and having all the problems with distributing quotas, allocation, allocating refugees, is something uh, what I, I am very pleased with, that the pendulum is, is going in this direction, and, and our some of our leaders began to understand that forcing countries, sovereign countries, with different historic experiences to accept quotas and forgetting about their uh, specific situation, like Poland, for instance, we have 25,000 people from Chechnya and people from Middle Asia, like Kyrgyzstan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, they are coming to Poland, and some of them are uh, asylum seekers as well. This is simply not okay to take one into consideration and disregard the
3: other. Is one of those Solutions that countries that are not big primary recipients of refugees, asylum seekers, uh, other unauthorised migrants, that they have to support those more at the front line, like Italy and Greece, in a financial fashion. That seems fair. And then on another question of fairness, Poland, if I'm not mistaken, has more internal migrants in the EU than any other country. So is it fair that Polish people can emigrate in such numbers to other European countries but not accept migrants in in the case of the refugees and the asylum seekers?
1: Well, that's a very awkward question because I would like all those poles to come back to Poland. So this is their individual decision. They have actually—they are strengthening other countries. They are paying taxes in other countries. We now have uh, 3.8% of unemployment rate, one of the lowest in the European Union, according to Eurostat. And I would like all them back in Poland. Our country is losing. It's not gaining. Our country is losing 2 million, was losing, and not anymore. People are coming back, but in tens of thousands rather than hundreds of thousands, unfortunately. So, our country was losing, and you want me to lose more or you want me to pay more? Uh, We are paying our price for for keeping stability at the eastern flank of the European Union. And, in particular, what is disregarded is the Russian invasion on Ukraine. It is not very well appreciated from the Brussels perspective, but there is a real war in the, in the Donbas area in, in, in one part of the Ukraine where close to 10 million people live. And many people as homeless and um, hopeless, they have escaped from this part of Ukraine and they have found their new home in Poland and yes most of them are working some of them they are we are helping through different social security channels but this is the way how we try to also help preserving peace in this part of uh, of the world uh, and, but i'm not diminishing uh, reducing the importance of the southern problems therefore we have actually in cooperation with the european investment bank we have made either the biggest or the second biggest contribution to the european resilience initiative prepared by european investment bank this is the european resilience initiative is going to be a quite a big fund to deal with the problems, a little Marshall Plan for Libya and Syria very much needed to rebuild hospitals and schools and uh, basic infrastructure, and we want to participate in this. And if people decide in Brussels that we have to put more money uh, for those funds, I'm, I'm absolutely ready to do so um, in, immediately.
3: It struck me from the latest Eurobarometer survey, the survey of the 28,000 people in the 28 member states and their attitudes to the EU that it came through that there are higher levels of support than ever for the EU. But it also seems clear that there is more persistent criticism than ever of different elements of how the EU functions. And so it struck me almost as a new normal, that there is not so much the narrative of a dream of peace and prosperity anymore, but there is just a day-to-day reality of Europe. And people, especially in light of Brexit, feel more secure in their membership and more able to criticize it on a regular basis. I I, I do believe
1: that we have to have a vision, not necessarily ever closer union, because the last couple of years or maybe last decade has clearly shown to us that some utopian ideas may sound nice for the world of academia. Or media, but they are not necessarily bought by people and in, in popular votes. Taking it one by one, I, I think that we have to find new ways of how to fund Europe. And one of the African elephants in the room is VAT gap and tax havens. They are my two critically important points which I try to mention in many, on many occasions. Uh, just to give you a comparison, an annual budget of the European Union helping so well to integrate, to fund infrastructure, to fund common agriculture policy, and in the near future to fund PESCO and innovation funds, which is which is very good, which is the very right move. The annual budget of the EU is €155 billion. Euro. The recent estimation of the European Commission about the loss from the VAT gap is was €160 billion euro per annum, and the loss with regard to the tax havens is €165 billion. Euro. So, like Germany and Poland in particular, we, we are not tax havens. We work very hard building all the you know, infrastructure and, and economic power of our companies. And by the way, lots of them are Mittelstand, are, are small and mid-sized companies. At the same time, some other countries, some of our neighbors, Our neighbors of Germany, they are tax havens. And I don't think this is right. This is beggar-thy-neighbor policy. And the other thing which I have mentioned, VAT gap, Poland was one of the most successful countries in the world. Over the last two years, we were able to close 75% of the VAT gap in a very short period of time. By the way, we have done this, we have done this, thanks to some banking-related instruments like big data, data analytics, and we were able to, to target all the VAT carousel frauds and missing trader links in a specific way. I would like to show new areas to address through which we could strengthen the European integration and through which we could address lots of populist-related tensions and imaginations, some of them real, some of them
3: not so real, but they are there. And we have to address them, and money always helps. With someone like President Juncker at the Commission, who is obviously Prime Minister and Finance Minister of Luxembourg, potentially someone like Mr. Reuter at the Council next year, do you or can you trust figures like that from those countries to fight that fight, or does it have to be other people who fight that fight for it to succeed? <laughs> Well, Mr. Juncker, he's yeah. been involved in one of the tax systems you complain about. So, can he be yeah. well, successfully in charge of lax, reforming it? Lux
1: leaks, you mean, and so on? Uh, Panama Pay. Well, I, I understand he he kind of apologized for 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 this. Um, uh, it is. Well, I, probably. Well, I, I think Jean Claude. I, I, I spoke with him many times. I I, I find him very sensible, a very experienced and, and forward-looking politician. So I I take glass half full rather than half empty. And what was in the past, I I don't want to drill too much deeply into this. I, I just would like to have our system where we create more competitiveness in Europe through natural Schumpeterian mechanisms rather than through tax haven's advantages. Mm -hmm. There is one policy which is uh, very successful uh, and related with uh, the name of Jean-Claude Juncker. This is the Juncker Plan. This is the European Fund for Strategic Investment. And here we have also a very good example of how sensible policies based on market rules can change the investment reality around this. And the investment gap in Europe was estimated by the European Investment Bank to be on the level of 680 billion euro in 2016 alone. Even if this is uh, very difficult to close the, the whole gap, the whole investment from the Juncker plan, close to 300 billion euro, has enormously contributed to allocate capital in the infrastructure and some energy efficiency and some other other areas. So I think in Europe we also need positive examples where we have decided about something and we were able to to deal with this appropriately. And and this is one example of, of, of such a kind. So I'm very supportive. Let's imagine that robots and Internet of Things and machine learning and even artificial intelligence will really, to some extent, Happen. Uh, it is happening. Robotics is, is happening right now as we speak. And if it is so, robots is technology, technology is capital. Like Who has to have the benefits of this whole technological development? It has to be much more widely spread through different social contracts. The post-Second World War social contract is over. It's kind of obsolete. We have to find a new social contract, including the robotics and the new implementation of new technologies, but also how the profits income coming from this is distributed. And we have touched on this to some extent through the tax havens in particular. And it has to change. And therefore, I'm grateful to President Macron and Chancellor Merkel that they bravely talk about digital taxation and addressing those examples of multinationals who, which abuse the, or to some extent misuse at least, the taxation system. And the reason why I'm saying about those hard things like technology, income, taxation, rather than visionary and let's all be in, live in peace, is that this is how we are, we will be able to address the needs of the youth, of younger people, younger generations into the future. Distributing respect, distributing money, distributing peace.
3: That was Polish Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki and joining us now is a special edition of the Brussels Brains Trust. We've got a new panellist joining us, Kate Bolangaro. Welcome to EU Confidential.
0: Thanks for having me, Ryan.
3: So you may know Kate from all of the videos we were doing at the last EU Leaders Summit. So Kate was so enthusiastic about bringing you the inside story that we decided we just had to have her on the podcast panel. And then our regular panelists, Lina Aberus and Alva Finn, are also here with me.
2: Good morning, Ryan. Lovely
5: having you, Kate. Yeah, hi to all.
3: So we have got... Don't even know what you'd call it. It is a cascade of interesting activities at the European Parliament this week, worthy of LOLs, worthy of WTF moments. I think maybe we should kick off with the idea that members of the European Parliament are very happy to grill Facebook and other leading people and organizations around the world, but when it comes to being grilled about their own expenses, they didn't seem to think they needed scrutiny. So, a little bit of background. European parliamentarians get 4,400 euros a month on top of their salaries for general expenses and that should go to things like having an office back home or paying for the sort of things that allow dialogue with constituents. But we don't know really because there are no receipts. Ladies what do you reckon?
5: And
2: it's timely because, especially now we're, we're preparing for next year's elections, I think it's very important to bring more out of these stories so the European citizens know to whom they are voting, who's representing them in Brussels. Uh, it's a beautiful, it's timely, and we hope that we have more and more stories to bring to light.
5: I think, yeah, just having some scrutiny, and I understand they do need quite a hefty expense budget because they have to go back and forth from their constituency to here. But there's just no reason why they shouldn't have to do expenses. And obviously they downvoted it because it will create a little bit of extra admin for them and more scrutiny. But, yeah, I think it's outrageous. This is just the kind of thing that a Brexiteer would be like, look, they don't want any scrutiny. It's a cash cow. I can just imagine Nigel Farage now talking about this. So, yeah, it's just a pity. Why do they, if you want to save Europe, then allow it to change.
3: Kate, have you ever worked for an organization where you didn't have to provide receipts to claim expenses?
5: Uh,
0: never. I don't think that that would ever fly in any news organization. I think your editor would be wondering who you're whining and dining, especially at 400 euros ahead. Definitely, I had a feeling, though, that this whole situation was quite sad for the most democratic institution among the EU institutions. and. It really represents what Freedom House has been saying, that we're seeing a retreat of democracy worldwide. This is the 12th year in a row that we've seen this happening. And so I think it's really sad when the EU holds itself up as a beacon of democracy, but it's unable to regulate itself.
3: Well, I'm glad you brought up these 400 euro ahead dinners. And because to your point, Alva, actually a group of far right MEPs yesterday were told to pay back more than 500,000 euros that they had spent literally on champagne and expensive dinners and gifts, you know this is not something that only happens on the right, but we see this over and over again amongst people who claim to say that the EU is a waste of money, but they seem to be very good at wasting the EU's money.
5: Yeah, but I think that some of that is on purpose as well, no? I think some of them proudly said, well, I'm spending the money that you give. But, yeah, it's absolutely right that they should be asked but to repay could that money. They buy
3: baguettes for people who don't have baguettes as well if <laughs> yeah. they want to misuse the <laughs> money. What about the, the starving money?
5: French farmers? We needed to give them champagne as gifts so they would vote for, yeah, for national. Yeah, I think we've talked about this a lot, about misuse of funds, especially by far-right groups. It will continue to happen until there are better regulations for how uh, MEPs spend our money. The
2: funny part is that they are really acting as if they are private sector and these are shareholders of a a company or sitting on board of multinationals and as if they they, they made the money. There's no differentiation between this money, as as Al-Vasad is is given to them. Like, hey, listen, this is interested in you. And no, we have to splurge and enjoy life. And then saying that we don't have money for migration or refugees. And uh, we have to uh, look into our national budget. So please, we need more of these stories. It's the moment where everyone should know about it. There are
3: digital systems now where we can fix this. You could give everyone a credit card Force yeah. them to, You load right. the money on the credit card. They it have to use the credit card to access the money. And then there'll be a digital trace of everywhere where it was spent. Or you could put a limit. You okay. could say no more than €2,000 per transaction. So it's going to be a very small, fancy dinner if you had those systems. Any last reactions on that, Kate?
0: I think that it's not surprising given the fact that there isn't an independent body that's looking over the funding. And maybe that should be something that should be considered in the future in order to make it more
3: transparent. Now... Let's switch it to the left. Far-left MEPs on Tuesday blocked proceedings at the parliament. So they held up Europe's House of Democracy from conducting its debates in what they said was an act of solidarity with interpreters. Now, to give you a bit of background there, we also had a listener of EU Confidential, one of the interpreters, write into us to say that they're in their fourth week of industrial action and that the Parliament has been arguing that interpreters need to work longer hours and have shorter lunch breaks, um, but wouldn't be offered any extra cash in return for that. Now, it's a bit of an opaque discussion. We don't see a lot of documents out there in public, so it's a little bit hard to verify exactly where there is right and wrong here. But I guess the point I thought we should debate is, is it okay to block something like a Parliament, no matter how good the cause, like the the left-wing MEPs did yesterday?
2: Of course not. I mean, if you want to help, if you want to change something, you have to be present, you have to vote, you have to put your case there and defend their rights in the most democratic way. But they are not taxi drivers or Uber drivers that they go and, and strike and paralyze a city. This is paralyzing democracy and it will not help. It definitely, they OK, they made a bit of noise, but did they solve the problem by striking? Of course not. They delayed it
5: now. But there's lots of, I mean, okay, first of all, it wasn't actually the interpreters themselves, it was the MEPs, right? So it's a form of protest from within the European Parliament, within the members of the Parliament. We know that there's loads of techniques that politicians use, like filibustering, etc., to keep the House open. So why can't they, yeah, and I wonder, like, how do you balance workers' rights with democracy? It would be different if they were doing it every day of the week and they stopped the house from opening for, you know, three or four weeks at a time. I think it's just a small display of solidarity that it's in line with left values. So to me, it seems okay. If they were doing it every day, yeah, then it would be a problem, I think. But yeah, are people more important than the parliament?
3: Or are people in the parliament? Okay,
0: I think uh, definitely people do make up the parliament, obviously, but uh, the parliament is also important as an institution in our societies. I'm from Canada, and actually our own prime minister decided to shut down the parliament, and I think that the parliament is like a stage for the theatre production that is democracy. So hopefully there is space for different debates and different ways of using the parliament to, gra- to get attention to issues that do need attention.
3: And this went right up to the top. I mean, you had people like Jean-Claude Juncker saying, this is not normal. And for once, uh, he and Antonio Tajani were agreeing. It sounded a little bit like a lover's quarrel, the way they had their argument about it. Uh, But they both seemed to agree that 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 shouldn't be happening.
5: And I think the thing as well is when you do a demonstration on workers' rights, a lot of it is to show how invaluable your job is. So maybe it was a little bit of that as well, you know, the And literally, to make the point that um, this person made in their email, we need uh, multilingualism to make Europe work. Interpreters and translators are key to how we all work together at European level. So I think even a day of showing that, I mean, it's not that bad, especially if it comes from within a solidarity thing with MEPs who are on their side.
3: I hope the MEPs actually checked with the interpreters first, because that would be terrible if they just went out and unilaterally decided that this needed to happen uh one final issue that the parliament dealt with on monday night was the issue of harassment which has been something we have spoken about at length on the podcast and so eight months after mep said enough is enough we need to take action in our own house a policy was finally put forward to the parliament's executive committee a fairly standard decent policy by all accounts if you look at the sort of things that they're against But there are two elements that we need to discuss. One is it's a voluntary policy. No one's going to be forced to sign up to this. No one is going to be forced to go into training about what is and isn't harassment and how you can avoid it. But also there are some very tough penalties if you don't sign up to the policy where you will not be allowed to stand as a vice president of the parliament, you will not be allowed to become. the the lead on a particular file, what they call a rapporteur, you won't be allowed to go on overseas trips and you won't be allowed to negotiate on behalf of the parliament with other institutions, which sounds like a really tough policy, except for that voluntary bit. What do we reckon about the idea of that policy?
0: Well, I think that the idea of making it voluntary kind of trivializes the debate, because while it's a tough policy, there are some great measures in there. It doesn't necessarily lend seriousness to the cause when you put voluntary in front of it, because then people automatically assume that it's something that maybe should not be taken seriously. I'm a journalist. I've been covering these halls of powers now for over a year and a half. And I've definitely been in situations myself, which I'm sure you've also discussed at length on this podcast, and every woman in Brussels, and even men as well, have all faced harassment at some point. And I think that trivializing those experiences is not a good way to start a legislative process.
2: It has two sides for me. I, I think it's really good that uh, somehow, indirectly, they are obliged to sign it because they are so ambitious, they are so selfish, they want to move up in their careers, they want to have positions in within the parliament and their committees and their groups, and that serves the whole approach of the, the harassment, uh, n- no harass- harassment uh, campaign. But in the meantime, it's sad because they don't take it that much of a serious issue that... They need obligatory to do it. It's like a sort of like my personal values, my personal integrity, my party's uh, integrity, my 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 members. My th- th- this is this is the, the whole thing. But from from a succeeding or let's say uh, the result uh, justifies the mean. The end justifies the, end. the means. Yeah. So um, I'm like ra- like really I have struggled here. Alpha, our
3: final word.
5: It's not really zero tolerance, is it? I mean, that's where most sexual harassment policies are heading. It's illegal, actually, to sexually harass someone. And I wonder what the reasoning for making it voluntary was. Do you know?
3: I think it Well, I don't want to speak on behalf of a body that I'm not representing, but I understand that it's around the idea that you can't bind a parliament or parliamentarians to a particular course of action. So it goes down to this kind of uh, existential question about who can force a parliamentarian to do something.
5: Well, I mean, parliamentarians are covered by laws. We have laws against sexual harassment. So, I, I mean, it's another case of... But those laws
3: be- proved insufficient, clearly. That's why they're debating having some kind of extra monitoring in the House.
5: Sure. But still, I mean, some of these things are legally binding on them anyway, right? They shouldn't be sexually harassing people. And maybe it's about avoiding sexual harassments or uncomfortable situations. And it goes a little bit further than legislation. But still, this is the second time in the podcast we've talked about parliamentarians not wanting to be bound by the other rules that we're all bound by. No expenses. I can sexually harass whoever I want. Yeah, I just think that anybody who is working in the Parliament under a parliamentarian now will think, oh my, they don't really have a zero tolerance policy because it's not obligatory, it's voluntary. And does that mean they can, you know, violate my rights to be safe in the workplace? I think it's, it's not a, it's not, I hope they adopt it in a resolution or something like that because that's outrageous.
3: I'm going to make a bet that this is not the last time we discuss harassment in the Parliament yes. on the podcast <laughs> Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for on this week's episode of EU Confidential. So thank you very much to our panellists. And thank you, of course, to the whole team that makes EU Confidential possible. Weidong Lin, Antonio Fernandez, Nicole Fowler, and Maggie Duncan. Thanks for listening. And remember, wherever you found the podcast, please take a moment to rate, review, or subscribe to the podcast. And then it comes to you. You don't have to do all the work of finding it each week.